Good morning. Welcome to this hour of worship. Welcome to everybody who's here physically in the sanctuary. Um, welcome to anybody joining through on live stream, whether at your home in the fellowship hall or viewing this later. This evening, we're going to be meeting as usual for our outdoor abbreviated service. This is the second week in a row now that it's going to be at 5 p.m. on the lawn. As usual, bring your own chairs and blankets and wear a mask. And unlike this service, there's no need to register. In case you missed the all-church prayer need that went out yesterday, we as a church family are entering into worship this morning as we have too many times in the past with heavy hearts. Mark Van Damme passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, yesterday morning, and, and we all grieve. We grieve especially with, with Mark's wife, Lori, with his three precious daughters, uh, Jody and Kelly and, and Jackie, and with um, his whole family. With that news shocking all of us, we're going to open up our, our worship service with some verses from uh, the Psalms looking to the one we need to look to all the time, but when we enter into worship, but especially in times like this. What I'd like us to do is for you to stay seated, and, but for all of us to say these verses together. There's going to be one from Psalm 46 and then a couple from Psalm 91. Let's say these words together, okay? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. As we enter into worship, having confessed those words about our God and about his care together. Uh, I want us to spend a few moments in silent prayer as we begin the service. And as we spend time in silent prayer, let's be consciously lifting our eyes from our circumstances and the things of this earth to the Lord our God, reigning in heaven, reigning in majesty, reigning over his church, at faith, his church everywhere, reigning over uh, the Vendam family and their situation and reigning over each one of our lives.
God's greeting and then we will continue to sing. Brothers and sisters, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord through the working of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's continue to sing.
We are, the Bible says, children of the promise. But we aren't born that way. In our nature, we resist the Lord and his love and his grace. And so we come in faith knowing that we need God's grace so much. And, and we can't even come in faith without God first giving us faith to respond to him. And so, so we come right in, in worship always as sinners, much in need of God's grace. Um, let's, with that in mind, listen to these words of assurance of our salvation. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are assured that there is no sin so terrible that God cannot forgive, no hurt so painful that God cannot heal. God accepts, God forgives, and God sets free. And so, brothers and sisters, receive the forgiving love and grace of the Lord in Jesus Christ today. We're called to live thankful lives in response. Um, we're going to think about and hear from God's word from Colossians on, on our call to holy living. And it's a number of verses in Colossians. And I want us to read them responsively. It's not indicated pastor, people, um, but I'll read the even verses and then could you read the odd, please? This is our call to holy living. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the word of God of Jesus Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Jesus came, of course, to save us, and he came for us to live more and more after uh, the way he calls us to live. And let's, we're going to sing now, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, asking him to come into our church family, into each one of our hearts, uh, to more and more receive his grace, uh, to more and more live for him. Let's sing that. We'll stand to do that, okay?
join me in prayer. Emmanuel, our Savior, Jesus, do come to us by your Spirit today. Come into each one of our hearts. Fill this congregation with more of you, with a greater desire for your glory, a greater desire to obey you, and a greater desire to share your great grace with those who haven't yet received us. Father, we gather and we come to you in this time of prayer in our grief. Where, where else could we go with it? But to you, the great shepherd of your sheep. Hold those who've been cast into sudden mourning in your gentle arms, we pray. Even as we pray and give comfort to them in various ways, send your spirit to comfort them like none of us can. Supernaturally, a divine comfort with eternal hope and with everlasting grace and life that only you can provide. We also pray that you'd be near Thea Baker's family and friends as they mourn her passing away and the suddenness of that. Thank you that she's in your arms, Father. I pray, too, that you'd comfort all those for whom these deaths bring to mind their own grief again and maybe in a sharp way. We think of all those who need you in a special way in our church family, uh, as well as other loved ones who are on our hearts that we may know that are outside of this church family. And, and we pray as, as we think of others in the church family and beyond, especially for Ed Biesboer looking ahead to a heart procedure this Thursday. Father, as more and more ministries are making plans to begin, give wisdom so that we can continue our task of discipling young and old, building each other up in the faith, and reaching all those who need you too. Thank you for how far we've come in terms of Sunday worship, and now we pray a blessing on opportunities for smaller groups and ministries where people can grow, fellowship, and serve in your name in all of those ways. We, we turn and think of our world in these turbulent times as well as our nation. We think of those in the church and beyond in our world struggling with worry and anxiousness and depression. And, and we pray for everybody, all of us who need a little extra help there these days. We pray too that you bless your church Everywhere we think of churches that we are in close relationship through our denomination, and we also think of other Bible-believing congregations nearby and far away, that you would be pleased with the worship we bring by your great grace through the cleansing of your spirit. And Lord, draw near to us as we continue in worship this morning. We need you so very much in our lives and in our church, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to hear from the Bible today, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, as is so often the case, we come to you with a mixture of gratitude and questions today. 
Father, we are grateful for the lives that we have. We are grateful for this world that you have made. We, we are grateful for our church. We are grateful for all of these things. And yet we come before you with mourning and with questions. We come before you with, with all of our own struggles and our church's struggles and our nation's struggles and our world's struggles. And Father, we so desperately need to hear from you. And so we pray that today as we hear your word, as we reflect on it together, that you open our hearts, that you speak directly to us. Help each of us hear what we need to hear from you today and work through us so that what we do here today, how we hear your word impacts us today and in the days ahead. We pray all this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, amen. We're wrapping up a three-part series on the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers today. We started a couple weeks ago by looking at the first major movement in the book of Numbers. And, and in that sermon and in those first ten chapters or so of the book, we see the Lord drawing His people together and, and identifying who they are and then arranging them in a certain shape with Him at the center and the people gathered around Him and gathered in a way that, that's kind of like a military camp. And, and the message we saw there is that the Lord is leading and guiding us and He is taking us somewhere. And then last week we looked at the middle, the second major section of Numbers. And, and we looked at a particular text, but the overall movement in that section is the people grumbling and disobeying and fighting with each other and fighting with the Lord. We go from the Lord drawing his people together to the people fighting and fighting and fighting. And we saw the Lord, well, he let the people experience the consequences of their actions, but then he also delivered them and he worked to restore and renew them. And now we come to the last major section of the book of Numbers today, and we're, we're going to read a passage about, well, you've probably heard of the prophet Balaam if you read Bible stories growing up. We're going we're gonna to read a bit of the Balaam story and and see how the Lord takes care of and watches over His people even in the midst of their troubles. So we're going to read from Numbers chapter 23 and then into chapter 24 this morning. This is God's word for us. Then Balak said to Balaam, Come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. And Balaam said, Build me seven altars here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. 
They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows they pierce them. Like a lion they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. Now I am going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. And then he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will, go str- will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So we're going to work through this text with three questions about the identity of three characters in this story. And, and this is a story in its own right. It's a piece of history. It tells us what happened. But it's also a story that gives us a picture of, of history, of our own situation, of where, where the Israelites were at that time and also where we are today. So we're going to start by talking about the Israelites. We're going to start with the question, who are these Israelites? And as we've seen the last while, the, the Israelites, well, there are people in the wilderness. At the end of the first chapter that we read, Balaam looks out and he sees the people in the wasteland, in the wilderness. And then at the beginning of chapter 24, the, the people of Israel are described as being in a desert. And as we saw last week, and if you want more details on this, you can go listen to the sermon from last week, but... But as we saw last week, the people are in the wilderness, they're in the wasteland, they're in the desert because they've been disobedient to God. God delivered them out of Egypt, he brought them through the wilderness, he brought them to the promised land, and when the people got to the edge of the promised land, they said, we don't want to go in there. The people are too scary, they're too big, they'll defeat us. And so God brought the people back out into the wilderness for another 40 years of wandering. And during that time of wandering, the people are a mess. They disobey God over and over again. They fight with each other. They fight with the leaders God has given them. They, they just do everything wrong over and over again. And, and God keeps, well, He keeps letting them experience the, the consequences of their actions, but He also keeps delivering them from their troubles and providing for them when they're hungry. He provides food. When they're thirsty, He provides water. And, and in this whole 40-year journey, he's, he's leading them on toward the promised land. And here in Numbers 23 and 24, the, the people are drawing closer and closer to the place God has prepared for them. And they've had a couple battles and they've won. They've defeated some nations who've gotten in their way. And, 
And yet still they complain and they grumble and they turn away from the Lord. So the Israelites are this conflicted, disobedient people who are on the way to the promised land, but but yet who keep falling back and doubting and disobeying. And in that identity, the Israelites portray us. The Israelites portray us. Paul David Tripp, who's a well-known speaker, author, counselor, pastor, he wrote a book recently about suffering. And in that book, he shares the story of a couple people who came to him for counseling. And one of them, Adam, had a, had a wonderful life. He was at the top of his class all the way through grad school. He got a job that was exactly what the firm he wanted, doing what he wanted to do. And he got promotion after promotion and really thrived in his work. But, but then the day comes where he just starts to be so physically exhausted all the time. And after work, he's just wiped out, so he starts pulling back from his friends, and after a while, they stop calling because he never wants to go out anymore. And, and then he realized as he's sitting at work, he's just staring blankly at his desk for minutes or hours at a time, and he walks out of meetings not remembering anything that happened in them because he's so tired all the time. And so one day, he abruptly gets up, and he walks into his boss's office, and he resigns. And he just goes home and he sits there. When, when the refrigerator runs empty, he orders food. When the house gets too dirty to live in, he calls in a company to clean it up. And, and that's just his life. He sits at home and he's tired, going nowhere. And Jolene got married and, and things were going wonderfully. She had a loving husband, great community. But, but then one day it just started to get really hard to get out of bed. Life just looked kind of pointless. And then as time went on, it looked more and more pointless. And, and she didn't feel like her life was worth anything or like she was worth anything. And so she just stopped getting out of bed one day. Her husband would urge her and try to get her to do things and she would just kind of peter out again. And both of these people showed up in Paul Tripp's office the first time they'd been out of their house, the first time they'd been out of their pajamas in weeks. And they, yeah, they believed in God, but, but life was so hard. You know, for us as a church, the last few weeks, the last couple months, we've, we've started worshiping in person again. We've been able to gather twice on Sunday for, for what, a couple months now, and, and it's going well, and we're together, and we're moving forward, and, and we've started having ministries meet, and our cadets, and our gems, and all kinds of things are happening, and we're moving forward. And then today, we get, or yesterday, we get the call or the email that Mark Vandam passed away unexpectedly, and, and now what do we do? Yet another relatively young guy, yet another member of council, yet another person who will be deeply missed by our church is just gone. And so like the Israelites, we're on the way to the promised land, and we have some victories, yet at the same time, at the same time, we are in such a mess. We have so many, so many troubles. That's the Israelites. That's us. And now let's talk about the second character in this text. And let's talk about Balak. And Balak, who is Balak? Well, Balak is the king of Moab. And Moab is a, a relatively small country that was just to the east of the promised land. And so the Israelites were going to have to pass through it. 
And Balak has been hearing news of this great host of people coming out of the wilderness and some of his neighbors have been defeated by them and and Balak's just lost a couple wars to some of his neighbors. So he knows that if somebody can beat them, he can't beat that somebody. Balak, King Balak, knows that he is in trouble. His nation is on the verge of getting wiped out or chased away. And so because he doesn't have any military power to speak of to compare to the Israelites, well, he goes out and he embraces ancient, unconventional warfare. What Balak is doing here is is arming the nukes or getting the biological and chemical weapons ready to go. Because what he's doing is he's calling in the best professional cursor available. There are these sort of prophets or seers or, or call them what you want in the Old Testament who were believed to be able to come and control the will of the God or the gods. And if you could get these people to come in and, and lay a curse on your enemies, they would be sure to be defeated and you would be sure to win. So, so King Balak, he sees the Israelites down there in the wilderness coming toward him and, and he sets out to destroy them. King Balak... Well, he represents the forces of evil that are always, always set against God's people. And wow, do we see that in our lives today too. The world is always a harsh place, but but you look around it these days and there seem to be more and more movements that that either want to co-opt the gospel, that want to take the Christian faith and, and put it in the service of some other cause. Or movements that want to just wipe out the Christian faith that will say we don't need that anymore. It's, it's toxic. We've outgrown it or, or whatever the latest reason is. So let's just get rid of it. The faith doesn't matter. Away with it. Or we see, see things that, that go wrong that just shouldn't be the way they are. Going back to to Mark again, we see someone who should have had years, decades of of life left with his family, left in our church, and and instead he's gone. And if you think over the last few months, I think all of us can think of of all kinds of things in our own lives, in our churches, all kinds of things where, where it seems like Satan has been hard at work to defeat us. We've got our own troubles and we have the forces of evil lined up against us. We are Israel, making progress and yet in trouble. And we face Balak, we face Satan, we face the forces of evil that are dead set on wiping us out. But then we come to the third character in this text for today. And we're going to talk about who is Balaam. Who is Balaam? And, and to get us started on that, let's, let's go to China. About a year ago, and you may have heard this story, but there was a story from last October or so of, of this real estate developer called Tan. And Tan was in a really intense lawsuit with another real estate developer. They were going back and forth. Legal costs were mounting. Things didn't look good. So Tan had this brilliant idea one day. He's going to hire a hitman to kill his legal opponent, and then he'll win. So Tan goes out, and he hires Z, and he pays Z a lot of money, really, hundreds of thousands of dollars to kill this other guy, and Z is an entrepreneurial type, so what he does is he goes and he hires Mo to do the actual work. 
So he collects the money from Tan, passes a small portion of it on to Mo. Mo is going to kill this guy. Well, Mo, Mo also is very good at delegating. So Mo goes and he hires another hitman called Yang. And again, he pays a certain portion of the money to Yang to kill this guy. And then Yang goes and he goes to another guy called Yang and he pays this guy a smaller portion of the money to kill the first guy. And Yang doesn't feel like getting his hands dirty, so he knows this guy called Ling, and he goes to Ling, and he hires Ling to be the hitman to take this guy out. So Tan hires Zi, Zi hires Mo, Mo hires Yang, Yang hires Yang, Yang hires Ling, and Ling finally goes to the guy who the hit is on and says, hey, there's a hit out on you. We should do something about this. And so this original guy and Ling come up with this elaborate plan where they concoct this fake assassination and so on and so forth. And Ling goes on his way and then the target of all these contracts goes to the police. And the police arrest Lin and Yang and Yang and Mo and Z and finally Tan and they line them all up and, and they charge them all with, well, with hiring somebody to kill somebody down the line and finally with, with some version of attempted murder. Well, in that story... Balaam, Balaam is, is a hitman. Here in Numbers, Balaam is a spiritual mercenary. He's a hitman. He'll, he'll work for money. You hire this guy, he will spiritually take care of your enemies so you don't have to worry about them anymore. Balaam, in many respects here, is, is a villain. And yet he's a really complicated character that if you, if you look at the course of his life as we see it in the book of Numbers, he's, well, he's a bad guy. And yet somehow, somehow when Balak calls Balaam in to curse Israel, the Lord turns things around and, and Balaam goes from being a mercenary, from being a spiritual hitman to, to being a type of Messiah. In these few chapters of Numbers, the Lord takes Balaam and, and he takes this guy and he, he turns them into someone who works not to curse Israel, but to bless them. While the people are down in the wilderness grumbling and Balak is up here on the heights plotting how to wipe them out, God makes Balaam bless the people. Now I want you to see these dynamics because they're incredibly important. So I'm going to put us back in those different places for a moment. Israel is down on the plains, down in the wilderness, down making progress toward the promised land, but, but really having a lot of trouble along the way. And Balak, well, he's up on the mountains. He's up in the high places. He's, he's sort of closer to the divine in the view of the ancient world, and he's plotting to wipe those people out. So we've got Israel, we've got Balak, we've got us, we've got the forces of evil, and now Balaam comes on the scene, and in these particular chapters, these four chapters or so here, Balaam becomes a representative of the Lord God. Balaam has been hired to curse the Israelites, and, and that's why he and Balak are up on a high place, that, that they're trying to get closer to God, and that's why there's all these sacrifices that are offered, you know, seven sacrifices, kill all the cows, do all you have to do so that God will listen and at this moment, Israel should be afraid. Israel should be scared out of their minds because of what is coming down on them. But then God flips the script. And Balaam speaks. And, 
And we picked up the third time that Balaam speaks. The first two times go the same way that Balaam speaks and he doesn't do what he's been contracted to do. He does the opposite. Balak gets really mad. They try again. They try again. We get to the third and fourth times here. And and this time Balaam goes into more detail. And he speaks from the Lord and he gives a vision. He gives a vision of struggling, stubborn, suffering Israel that's, that's incredible. These people who are dwelling in these dusty tents, well, well, they will grow and their dwelling places will be beautiful. They will prosper. Their kingdom will be powerful beyond all the other kingdoms around them. Those who bless them will be blessed. Those who curse them will be cursed. And you can imagine how Balak feels as he hears this guy who he's hired double-crossing him. This guy who he's hired to do this job, instead of, instead of putting the blessing over here and the cursing down there, he's putting the blessing down there and the cursing over here. God is not, not fitting in with Balak's plan. And Israel, and this is important for us to realize, Israel is oblivious to all of this. They're down there, they're chugging on with what they're doing, they're doing their usual stuff, and up where they can't see, up beyond the realm of their vision, they are being attacked and they are being defended. Through their internal struggles, through external attack, the Lord is taking care of His people. And the forces of evil, they have this great strategy. In the ancient world, pretty much any king would have signed off on this. Yeah, let's get the prophet and let's curse those people. That'll do it. But Balak's own strategy to advance his evil cause comes back at him. God undoes the evil that he's planned. And then as, as Numbers proceeds, even though Israel Well, through all of its history and really God's people up to today, even though they aren't always on the same page as the Lord, the Lord works through them. King Balak, Moab, they're defeated. Israel wins another battle and continues going on to the promised land. Even in their season of wandering in the wilderness, even as they they have to fight battles as they draw near to the edge of the wilderness and come to the promised land, the Lord is with them and the Lord blesses them. And that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. That even as we face our own struggles, even as the world comes after us, the Lord takes care of us, His people. You know, we can talk about Balaam being a type of Messiah, and there's, there's some similarities between Balaam and Jesus. Not in everything Balaam does, but, but in these texts. Jesus comes, and there are all kinds of forces that want to co-opt him to serve their agenda. There's all kinds of different movements that want Jesus to be this kind of political Messiah or, or to support this national cause, and, and Jesus turns all of that on, his, on its head because he's come to promote God's kingdom not any particular nation. Jesus fights God's battles, not other people's battles. And there's a point, there's a point in the Gospels where we see Jesus go up on a mountain. We see Jesus go up on Mount Calvary. And up there, Jesus, with his arms spread on the cross, he could have chosen to rain down curses. 
He had every reason in the world to look at, to look at everyone and to look at us and to say, you people abandoned me. You people put me up here. Because of you, I am up here suffering. And, and Jesus on that mountain could have rained down curses on us. He had every reason in the world to do it. But instead, Jesus, with his arms spread out, gave us his blessing. Instead of letting us face the consequences of our actions, Jesus took on all our punishment and all our suffering, and Jesus cleared the way for us to live with the Lord forever. Jesus is the one who Balaam is talking about in his fourth oracle, and, and the one we sang about in that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. A star will rise out of Jacob. There is one who is coming, but in Balaam's time is not here and is not near, but he is coming. And he will change everything. And as we look over the course of the Bible, we see that Jesus came, he arose out of the people of Israel, and his work changed everything. Despite our internal troubles and our external attacks, the Lord takes care of his people. And that, that is the story, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we need to keep telling ourselves. That is the story of the gospel, that the Lord takes care of us no matter how dark and hard today looks. In his book on suffering, Paul Tripp, as he reflects on Adam and Jolene's situation, he talks about two types of, two types of discouragement, two types of doubt. And he talks about the doubt of wondering, the doubt that when we look at the Lord and, and we see what happens in our lives and we wonder, how could God let this happen? How could this be? How can we have the situations we have in our lives? How can... How can we be looking to, to two funerals this week of people who just a couple months ago, just recently, were really in good health? How can this be, we wonder, and we don't understand? That's the doubt of wondering. But then Tripp also talks about the doubt of judgment. And that's the doubt where we go from thinking, boy, I don't understand God, to thinking, if God is like this, if God lets this happen to my family member, to my friend, to, to this person I know, then God must be uncaring, God must be unloving, God must be unfaithful, or God must be unable to do anything about it. And even if our theology is right in our heads, if that's where we are in our hearts, if we're at that doubt of judgment, then bit by bit we cut ourselves off from the only hope that we have to deal with all of our troubles. And sometimes... Sometimes it's even an unconscious shift, but when we move from, I just don't understand, to God just doesn't care, then we have condemned ourselves to wandering forever in the wilderness. What this story shows us, what the Bible tells us, what we need to hear today, is that even when things look hard, even when we look around and we don't know what to do or where to go, even then when we can't understand, the Lord is with us and the Lord, the Lord is taking care of us. We are not able to see up into the heavens. We aren't able to see all that's going on up there and, and we aren't even able to see all that's going on in this world. 
But in everything, the Lord is working for the good of his people. Balak, Satan, the forces of evil, they never get their way in the end. And even if we have to pass through some really hard times, the Lord is always turning things around. The Messiah is always there with us. And so even as we wander in the wilderness together as a church this week and and in the days ahead, we, we can hold on to God because He cares for us and is with us. I'm going to wrap up this morning with, with a little bit of a story from Curious George, a little bit of lightheartedness on this hard, hard day. So you probably know this, but Curious George is a, is a monkey, a fictional monkey, and he, he's curious, and his curiosity always gets him into trouble, right? Every Curious George story begins with George's friend, the man in the yellow hat, bringing him somewhere, rather negligently leaving him alone, and then George gets into all kinds of trouble, and then he gets bailed out at the end, right? That's every Curious George story. Well, in one particular Curious George story, George and his friend go to a train station, and they're waiting for for someone else to come in who's going to spend a few days with them. And and as they're waiting, the station master comes down out of his office, and he invites them to come up and and see where, where he works, and see, well, see the nerve center, the control center for the whole train system. So they go up into this office and the station master shows them all the levers and, and all the different things that he can move around to tell the different trains to go different places, take this track, take that track, we'll flip this switch there. And then George's caretaker, the man with the yellow hat and the station master, step outside and leave George alone in this, in this station master's office where he controls the whole train system. And predictably, George starts playing around, he's moving everything around and, and all those trains get out of order. They're supposed to be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And, and George has 7 coming in front of 3 and 1 is behind 10. And, and it just gets messier and messier. And as time goes by, the, the engineers start calling in and saying, uh, Station Master, why did you have me take that siding? Uh, uh, Station Master, I'm number 7. Why is number 8 in front of me? And George picks up the radio at one point and goes, Woo, ah, ah, woo. And the engineer from number 7 pauses and then he picks up his radio and he says to the engineer from number eight, ah, uh, do you know what the station master just said? And the number eight guy has a similar thoughtful pause and then he says, you know, I, I have no idea what he just said. I, I don't understand him, but I trust him. I don't understand him, but I trust him. And then the alarm bell goes off. The station master comes running in. He flips things around. All the trains get in their right order. Curious George's friend comes in. They're reunited. Everything is wonderful. Well, for us sometimes, it feels like a monkey is in control of the universe and things just happen randomly and he's just up there throwing switches and doing who knows what. But, but even though it sometimes looks like that to us down, down in the wilderness with the Israelites, that's not how it is. The reality is that the Lord is in control and that he, he has everything worked out. And even though there's all kinds of things that we can't see about his plan, he is always at work protecting us from, from our own troubles and from the Balaks of the world. And so we can affirm, we can 100% as as God's people, as individuals, and as a church together, we can 100% affirm, you know, we don't always understand God. 
We don't always understand Him, but we trust Him. Even when life looks impossibly hard, we trust Him. Even when there are things going on that make no sense to us, we trust Him. Even when life feels completely out of control and even hopeless and meaningless, still, still, we trust the Lord. Despite our troubles, the Lord always takes care of us. On this weekend, we have to together say, as we, as we think of the troubles we're looking at, we, we don't understand God. God, we, we don't understand, but we trust you. We don't understand, but we trust you. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, we don't understand you. Life is so hard. We all of us have our own failings and our own sins that we just can't let go of. We all have, as we look around us, family and friends whose lives are, are so hard. Father, we see the forces of evil at work in so many ways in ourselves, in our church, in our, in our state, in our nation, in our world. We, we just sometimes feel overwhelmed by all of this. It feels like we've been cursed. And yet, Lord, and yet, as we read your word, as we turn to you, we, well, we want to trust you. And we know that you're trustworthy as we read these stories and as we think of Jesus who went up on a mountain to take our curses and to give us your blessings. And so we do trust you, but it's so hard. And so, Lord, we pray that you renew us in our faith. Strengthen us in our hope. Father, give us a greater measure of your love and help us to care for each other well, even as we wander through this wilderness together. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by together singing Like a River Glorious and let's stand to sing.
As a reminder, we aren't going to have our congregational meeting today, but we will in the weeks ahead. We'll let you know via email um, going forward when that date will be. We'll also send out with our email and phone prayer chain this week uh, when arrangements for Mark are finalized, when the visitation and funeral will be. Finally, for those of you who are here, as we have been the last couple weeks, we're going to exit out these doors up front and you can kind of curl around and we'll meet on the front lawn for fellowship after the service if you're comfortable with sticking around for that. Let's keep each other in prayer and in our hearts and minds in the week ahead and now receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.